the one that knows each tear that falls to the ground, the one that knows each thought before the thought has even come into our mind. King Jesus, you are here in this place. You are moving by your spirit to bring sons and daughters to your shadow and to bring each of us into the fullness of the promised land. And as we open up your word today, King Jesus, we pray that you would empower me. I cannot preach. I cannot speak. I cannot even utter one word without your presence and the power that raised you from the grave doesn't empower me to do so. I would be feeble and unable to come up here because I would be bound by fear and timidity and everything else. But when the power of the Holy Spirit comes in me, I decrease in my own natural ability and I lean on nothing but you. That's when you move and that's when you speak. Open our hearts here today, King Jesus, that we would understand these very words that we've just uttered that you have defeated the greatest enemy to mankind, which is death itself. That if we profess to believe in you, death has been defeated in our lives. And there is nothing to fear, to fear you. We thank you now. We bless you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand in the reading of the word of the God, word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And we're reading, we switched over from the CSB and we're back to the ESV, English Standard Version. Here it goes. Acts chapter 1. Verse 1 through 5. And it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. First slide. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. The beginning of Christianity and the church in the first 40 days, part two. I want to give you some historical facts about Christianity that you may or may, or may not know. In 2033, Christianity will be 2,000 years, have existed about 2,000 years upon the earth. That's only 11 years from now if God would tarry with us and we would still be here. And so in 2033, we'll be exact 2,000 years. Jesus died at 33. And if you know anything about our calendar, AD, referring to after the death of Jesus, he lived 33 years before he was crucified. And so that's where that comes in. But since Christianity inauguration, Christianity has become the largest of all world religions or faith, as we would say, in the world. And this has come about through evangelism, preaching, and discipleship. Whether you quiet, whether you extrovert, introvert, there's something that happens to a person who becomes a Christian, where they are empowered to go outside of themselves and to do just these very things that I've just mentioned. Just telling someone about Jesus. Preaching. Some of you say, I can't even imagine myself preaching to my neighbors at work. Pastor Harry, you don't even know me. I'm so quiet. That would be the most fearful thing in the world for me today. But there is something about the power of the Holy Spirit. This took place in the lives of many people that we read about in the story here in the book of Acts. Where now Christianity is the largest faith in the world. According to the Pew Research, and you can find this on the internet, the percentage of Christians is about 33% of the world's population. We're hovering around about coming up on 8 billion. And if some would have their way, they would like to cut that down. But God continues to multiply and be fruitful. So therefore, we're hovering about 8 billion people now. And 33% of that, which adds up to be about 2.4 billion professing Christians in the world. It's a lot of people. Not compared to 8 billion, but a lot of people. The second religion is Islam. It comes in about 24%, 24.1%, which is about 1.8 billion people. And then the third is unaffiliated, atheist, secularist, naturalist, whatever you want to call them. They say they have no faith. Well, even though atheism is a faith, <laughs> it just says, I don't believe in stories that we're preaching, but it is a faith. They come in at about 16%, which is 1.2 billion. 
And then from there, you get Hinduism, 15%, 1.5 billion. And then you got Buddhism, which is 7%, which comes in about 521 million people. So what began almost 2,000 years ago has become the largest faith religion in the world. And so today, if you are in this audience a genuine Christian today, sitting right in front of me, then you are professing to the whole world around you that you believe this story that Luke is writing, who is himself a beloved physician by profession. He's a doctor in his day, a real doctor. They didn't have the internet then. I don't know how he got it, but he didn't just go on the internet and say, well, I'm going to make myself a doctor. He was a doctor. And he's writing to us. And Dr. Luke was an educated man. You know, sometimes people say, man, Pastor Luke is beautiful and educated. People say, no, no, Luke is educated. And he's used being used by Jesus. And it's good to be able to do what Luke is doing in, his, in, in the Bible, in, in both Luke and the book of Acts, because he's an educated man. And scholars say that his writings, both in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, is the best. Greek literary quality to be found in all of the New Testament. Luke knew the language. He was smart. His writings were impeccable. And he is a physician. And Luke is writing to us as a historian. And he's given us solid evidence. He's not given us myths, fables, and fiction. Fiction means not true, something made up, imaginary. He's not given us fiction concerning what he saw, what other people saw, in whom Luke has interviewed. And so there we see Dr. Luke's investigation of thoroughness explained, this is in my first slide here, we see him explaining his investigation that he's done with careful thoroughness. He's an educated man. And he's writing down some things that is so important for us as we believe this story here today. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke, verses 1 through 4. He says, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, people who saw all of this about Jesus, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things 
closely. It's good to be disciplined, to put your heart to something, your hands to something, and to do it with the best. Having followed all things closely for some time past, he says, and to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then he says this, that you may have certainty, epikonosko in the Greek word. It means a state of certainty with regard to a belief, being without doubt, a definite information about something. So Luke says this is no myth, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is saying, this is, take it to the bank. I've done a thorough investigation. Here they are. And so the book of Acts picks up where Luke's gospel leaves off. The story of Acts, which is called Acts of the Apostles really begins with Christ's ascension and the events of Pentecost, which we will see in the gospel being proclaimed first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the rest of the Mediterranean world throughout the Roman Empire, and then all the way down to us here in Fairfield in 2023. And as we get into the book of Acts, we see again, as Luke starts out this letter, he's addressing someone by the name, O Theophilus. New Testament scholars debate whether Dr. Luke is addressing a particular audience of Christians because the name itself, Theophilus, means friend of God one who's loved by God, or is Luke really addressing a believer by the name itself? And some doesn't, some say, looking in the commentaries, well, we don't know if he really existed. Is he talking to people who are loved by God, friends of God, those of us who have come to profess that Jesus is the Christ, or is he addressing an individual himself who is a believer? But whatever the case may be, this person is getting, or this audience is getting the real facts about what Jesus did, as Luke says, and taught and continues to do by his Holy Spirit then, and let me say, and now. So let me transition here. This is something important that I'm about to bring to your attention here in the text that you wouldn't not hear this concerning Luke as he's writing to us. Dr. Luke is the only, is, Dr. Luke is the only New Testament writer who actually gives us insight to the post-revelation ministry of Christ that covered the 40 days until his ascension, which we will see on next week when he ascends 
to the heavens and the angels come and say, hey, this one you see go into the clouds, he will return likewise. But here's my question to us. What did the Messiah do in those 40 days? What did he do? We saw last week, he arose from the grave. They see him. He eat a piece of broiled fish. So what does he do in these 40 days as he's meeting with the apostles and the disciples? And so here's my first, my second slide. Here, where you go. So what does he do in these um, 40 days? Now, I put three translations up because I really didn't, I was trying to figure out the ESV gives it its way, but didn't quite understand it. And other translations, you see, I put up the NSB and the CSB. Going to read them all three, but the ESV kind of leaves it out, and they really don't give a good understanding why. And looking it up on my logos in the Greek, it's basically I like the NSB better and the CSB compared to the ESV, because we're reading from the ESV, I still want to put it up there and just read it. So here's, so what is Jesus doing during these 40 days before he ascends? Word of God says in ESV that he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. The NASB says, to these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs. So during this 40 days, Jesus has presented himself to them alive. He's coming and going. This is after his resurrection. And he's coming and going to his apostles for 40 days. Can you imagine this? They saw him die. They saw him be nailed to the cross. And now Jesus is coming in and out into their lives. And the word of God says he's convincing by many convincing proofs. This word proof means extremely convincing factual evidence that helps to establish the truth of something. This is important. So Jesus who is alive is coming to his apostles, his disciples, and he's presenting many convincing proofs and appearing to them over a period of 40 days. I like to say the word 40 shows up everywhere, man. It's, that's an important word, 40 days. You see it throughout the Bible. He could have did it in 32 days, but it says 40 days. And so he's appearing to them and he's speaking to them and convincing many proofs. This many proofs means that he's, he's not giving his disciples certain ideals. That they were to take into the dark world where people currently reside under the dominion of Pharaoh, Satan, which has blinded them. He's not giving them ideals, but he's giving them proof that he is who he says he was. 
the Messiah, the Son of God. These guys saw him die. They heard the blows of the hammers. And now the one who was dead is now in front of them. I know there's a movement in, in the world that people want to go back to Africa and find religion. That's why you read, it, read this stuff carefully. Jesus is alive. And all the other religions of the world, whoever they were, when they died, guess what? Guess what? They stayed dead. When those pharaohs died, they tried to do some eternal stuff. If you go back to Egypt, I've never been there. Folks have gone. You go in those tombs, they're in there rolled up. They're dead as a doorknob. Jesus dies. And not only does he come out, he's hanging around for 40 days. People are seeing him, talking to him, and he's eating with them, getting ahead of myself. That's a game changer. No one has ever done that. And Jesus predicted that he was going to do that. This is the beginning of Christianity. This is what we're heralding out to the world. But as he's coming and going with them, at different times, the word of God says he was speaking to them, verse 3, the end, he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. He was coming and going through all these 40 days. The word of God says he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. But you say, Acts is Peter. Okay, you would say, Pastor, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, and we'll get more into it. This is where you need Bible study, um, Wednesday night Bible study. That's why we're advocating for that. But let me stop pause here. Some of you were not there on Wednesday night. Um, this is where coming together and growing in your faith and growing in your understanding on the, even the term the kingdom of God. That is an expansive statement in itself and phrase. Um, in my 35 minutes, I'm going to hit it and move on, hit it and move on. But that's where Wednesday night Bible study. Dion, Pastor Chad. E.J. Elder, Elder E.J., whatever. What, do you, what does Pastor Hardy mean by the kingdom of God? Give me more meat on the bone with that. Because that is important with concerning your life. How you live. So why is Jesus in this moment with 40 days? He's speaking to his apostles about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God, in a summary, basically is the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king. That's why I say King Jesus. He's a king. But he's a true king. He's a real king. Not the England type king. He's king of kings. And he rules. And the king has value. He has commands. And he has laws that should be abided by. Like marriage. The high value for the kingdom of God. Love. 
treating our neighbor as ourselves. Those are kingdom principles. So therefore, the kingdom of God is the eternal, really the, the central message of the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament, and it's throughout the New Testament. And so Jesus is speaking with them about the kingdom of God, which is the central message of the Bible. And you know that we are told to pray when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, hallowed be thy name. Then he says, what? Your kingdom come. Pray this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not your will. Not our will. And that's part of the problem. See, we have our wills. We have our purposes. But Jesus said, hold on. This is how you pray. Pray my kingdom come. My will be done. Not your will. See, that already goes up against a human heart. Hold on, no, I got my plans. But Jesus says to pray that way. Pray his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Say, Lord, your will be done, not my will. And then in verse 4, let's put verse 4, Carl, I mean, uh, Jeremiah. Um, Acts chapter, I mean, back to Acts. And so, this is important. Look what happens here. So he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And then it says, I'll stand with them. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He ordered. This word here, while stand with them, he ordered them not to depart. This word stand means to assemble with, with to stay. Some interpret this phrase and translate on one occasion while he was eating with them. And so you see there are different translations, even with this phrase here, and while staying with them, some say, and while he was with them, he was eating with them. So Jesus is eating with his apostles. He's in an intimate setting. And he's eating with them. And in that setting, look what he does. The word of God says, and he was, he ordered them. I want you to catch this. He ordered them. He ordered them. This word ordered means he, he was giving commands. Now, this is the king of kings. This is not your grandmother. This is, this is the Lord of lords. He said, and he ordered them. He gave them instructions. He gave them directions. He charged them with authority to do what? Not to leave or depart from Jerusalem. This is important here, Christians, what I'm about to say next. Please hear me. Because this is important. I got here in my notes, this is where a lot of Christians have no understanding of what I call biblical Christianity. Here's the king of kings. Here's the one that holds power over death itself. And he has given orders and commands to a bunch of men. And this is what I say here in my notes. If you're an aspiring leader, please hear this. This is why Jesus takes his time. And processing leaders. Because of that statement right there. 
You cannot get anything done with disobedient spiritual leaders. What if the leaders would say, you know what, my kid got to go here and play a soccer match. I get to, I'll I'll leave Jerusalem and go to Corinthians because they're having a party over there. Something as simple as that. And what we think, well, these guys didn't have nothing to do. They had wives and children. But here's Jesus saying, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. So this is why I say Jesus takes his time with leaders who oversee his church. You cannot do anything with leaders who are obstinate, rebellious, hard-hearted, self-seeking according to their own plans and purposes. Part of being a leader, and you're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, is that we need leaders who are willing to take their orders from him and from each other. It's important. stay in Jerusalem. Why are you telling them to stay in Jerusalem? We see it. The most important reason for staying and waiting in Jerusalem, following the orders and proclaiming the message of the kingdom, Jesus says, it had to be imbued by the promise of the Father, which was being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Says, wait. Man, we hate waiting. See, that right there stinks. We hate waiting. I want it now. As part of this generation we have now, everybody wants to be a boss. <laughs> no process. Just I want to be a boss. Whatever that is. There's only one boss, that's King Jesus. And he has a plan for your life. If I was you, you in this room, you wonder how I got here, submitted my life to Jesus, didn't care, job, money, homes, houses, didn't matter. I'm following Jesus. He's the true boss. He is the one that I will stand before and give account for my life. That's where all of my energy is going towards. I could care less about Alabama football. I told you guys, I had me over Greg Richardson's house. I saw Alabama losing the game. In fact, I even prayed for it because I knew they were probably going to lose. But I wasn't wrapped up in it this time. I could come back here and preach and not be all angry because Alabama Nick Saban didn't win another championship. I don't really care anymore. Nor if Auburn wins. Neither one of them. I don't care. It's only what matters according to the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, wait. And be endued with the promise of the Father which was being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because they had to have the power of the Holy Spirit first in order to carry out these commands. In order for them to go about proclaiming the kingdom of God, they had to be in power. Jesus was leaving. So it was important for them 
to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into their lives. And this is why Jesus said in John 16, 7, speaking about the Holy Spirit, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, talking to his disciples, that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate, the one who comes alongside, the one who's with me now, giving me the ability to preach in myself, I would not preach. Y'all need to hear that. I would not come up here. I can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And only you can do what you need to do in the kingdom of God with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. It's going to come. And you will see that later on when the Holy Spirit shows up on the day of Pentecost. So let me slow down, stop here for a moment. I'm in a Reformed tradition, and there are some strengths of the Reformed tradition. Strong on the word, strong in trying to align spiritual leadership with biblical fidelity, meaning lining up with the word of God, with elders, deacons, and etc. Um, reform, strong, very strong. There are some tendencies of what I call, uh, that I've seen and observed, what I call tradition. Though it's in all of our um, confessions, but it's probably the weakest in the confessions. It's this one called the doctrine of revelation. According to the research, and Pew and Barner, you can read it up and man, it can't be true. It says about 62% of professing Christians don't really believe in the Holy Spirit. And I think this kind of teases out why we see what we see. That as a Christian, it's nowhere close to what Jesus says that Christians should be. And I was one of those Christians until I understood that, man, the Holy Spirit, there was no Holy Spirit. I had to really think about that. So I kept bringing it up, just tying it into my story. And part of my prayer as we go into the book of Acts that we be set afire. We only have a short life. And Jesus did leave. He ascended. But he says he's sending the spirit, which is the spirit of Jesus, inside of us. There are things that you can do by your natural whatever. 
But the things that God is calling us to do that are according to the kingdom of God, you can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus says and had Chad read for that intention, for that purpose. He says, you can't do nothing. And Jesus was not joking. You can't do nothing without me. So when I come up here, you can't hear it. Holy Spirit empowered me. When I sit down to do sermon prep, Sandra can tell you, my mind can't think of nothing. It's like a blank piece of paper. And I have to sit and fight and war and say, Holy Spirit, help me bring this to life. And it, it, it takes discipline. And I have to wait sometimes. And sometimes I have to wait there, but I know I can't just write a sermon. Writing a sermon is like poetry. I don't know which words to write. And you see people preaching out of their own mindset, out of their own thinking. They haven't given none of their time to asking the Holy Spirit to empower them. To do this or that. You cannot even love your wife or your husband without the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying this kingdom of God we cannot operate in it just by natural means. And so you wonder why I say, you know, it puzzles me and I would just say some people are not saved and the Lord said, no they're not saved. The Lord said they're just not empowered by my spirit. So that's why they don't witness because they keep thinking, well, that's not what I do. The Lord said, I didn't ask you. <laughs> I gave you your introvertness. That's not the issue. Holy Spirit, though I wouldn't say anything to him or her, but you are the one that helps. You are the one that empowers. You are the one that makes me turn into another person, another human being. Help me. Your will be done. And according to the research, the average Christian here in America can't even believe in separation. I couldn't believe when I was reading this. Man, Brian, you got to be out of your head to have this church. Pure research. I mean, I trust you guys on some things. This cannot be true. to be honest and what I see that most Christians I see a powerless detach from the thing that Jesus said is going to come and every good not to depart from this but wait for the Say my pastoral work and and I'm through. I um you know I um I can tell you at times when 
I'm not relying on the Holy Spirit. Uh, I supported ministers in the house. Uh, I try to get up close to some of them occasionally. That's good. I choose to say, I don't think that's appropriate. I've been very transparent. I come up to them. Sometimes it's really hard. But they sacrifice for me. And you know what? I don't have to be imposing. Say, Pastor Hardy, how did you come to become that sensitive to the Holy Spirit? And I talk about this throughout this whole sermon series. You read the entry, you'll see that with the apostles. They be doing one thing, and the Holy Spirit says this. How do they know? How do you know when you're hearing from the Holy Spirit? How do you know what He's saying to you right now? Those will be some of the things I was praying for Holy Spirit. Give me description and point of connection to help the people to know who it is that they're speaking from. I'm talking about even in the small, minute things of life. Like sometimes, Sandra said, I lose my keys all the time. <laughs> and when I get frustrated, I say, Holy Spirit, I don't know what to but you can see <laughs> And typically when I pray that, and I find it. Father, um, you, you are the one who has allowed this day to be. You are the one who has created us, made us, fashioned us in your likeness, in your image. Father, you have given to us, you've called us into this kingdom, the kingdom of God. Lord, we, we walk throughout. We see hear these stories of people who look many of them, they all dead now, they're all in heaven. Some are, not all. Those who were being used by you, they ran a good race. Some veered off of the path. Others remained faithful and just Father, you've called us here as a church in Fairfield to be church that is on mission, on mission for the kingdom of God here in Fairfield, 
that your will will be done here in Fairfield as it is in heaven. And Father, I confess with myself that there are moments and times and seasons of life where I just lean on my own strength. I try to do this Christian life by my own power. I'm living according to my own flesh strength. And I, that's miserable, Father, and I confess. Lord, I, when I just take the time to just to say, Jesus, bring your hands to me. Show me where I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. Show me where I'm grieving you where I'm, you're talking to me and I'm not listening. I pray, Lord, that during this sermon series that you will sensitize us, Lord, to become more and more sensitive to your voice through your word. That we will become a church on fire with the Holy Ghost. Discipling, sharing our faith, declaring and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. From the least of us to the greatest of us, that we will all be moved by it. This is what we see in your word. So, Father, we pray. Move us out of the way and give us a greater desire and thirst to know and to walk intimately with the Spirit of God, even today. And so, all over the room, this is of every eye close every head bow. Just stick your hands out like this. It's just a show of, of just humility and just saying, Jesus, just um, Lord, we, we want to be close to you. We don't want just want to read the stories, Lord, but we want to be a part of the story that's unfolding in our eyes. So Lord, as we walk through this, these texts, help us, Jesus, Please stand. Please.